thank you for that truth, for that prayer that we could just sing. And uh, Father, please answer it. We pray that Christ would be magnified in us. That it wouldn't just be something that we sing about, but it would be the reality of the thoughts that we think, of the words that we say, of the actions that we do. Lord, change us and transform us. Make us more like Christ. Father, as we, as we come to study your word now, open our eyes that we would behold wondrous things from your law. Open our eyes that we would behold you for who you really are and for what you want to do in us and through us. We pray you would be glorified and magnified now in this time of study and worship as we look to your word. And Father, we pray all this in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated and as you do so, please take your Bible and open to the book of 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. I realize that we're we're supposed to be uh, in Revelation chapter 14 today, and we will get there, but we will get there by way of 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings is, is about a third of the way into the Old Testament, and in 2 Kings 6 we come face to face with the life and ministry of Elisha. Elisha, who was a prominent and well-known prophet of God. Elisha, who followed after the prophet Elijah. Uh, Elisha was, was again one that God would use to speak and to lead and to proclaim the word of God in Israel. Elisha, as we find him here in 2 Kings 6, he is serving the Lord, not surprisingly, if you know the Old Testament well, not surprisingly, during difficult times. During difficult times, Jehoram is king over Israel. He's king over the ten northern tribes, and he is largely not a good king. He is not a good king. Jehoram was the son of Ahab. Jehoram ruled for about 12 years in Israel. And again, the Bible says that he did what was evil. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, he was not as evil as his father Ahab had been, but he was not a godly king. He did not love God. He did, did, did not encourage the worship of, of the one true God. He tolerated the prophet Elisha. He even benefited, as we'll see, from Elisha's ministry in various ways. But he ultimately refused to repent of his idolatry. He refused to humble his heart before God. So from a, from a spiritual standpoint, as we come to 2 Kings chapter 6, from a spiritual standpoint, uh, things are not good in Israel at this time. And from an economic, military, foreign relations standpoint, things are not good either. Syria is working to invade Israel. Syria, uh, Syria is launching attacks and raids into the nation of Israel. They're trying to undermine security. They're trying to force Israel into slavery and submission to them. And so it's in that setting that we now pick up our story here in 2 Kings chapter 6. We'll begin by looking at verses 8 to 10. Here's what we read. Once... When the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God... Now stop there for a moment. That is Elisha. Okay, The text refers to Elisha as the man of God. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, 
Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him, and thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself more than once or twice. So this is, this is so great. Every time that Syria tries to invade Israel and set up a camp from which they're going to launch uh, these ambushes and these raids into Israel, Elisha just texts the king of Israel and is like, be careful, don't go there, don't go there. The, the Syrians, they're up to their old tricks. They're, they're waiting for you there. And so Israel is continuing, uh, is continuing delivered. God is so gracious. He continues to show kindness to his people, Israel, even when they have a wicked, foolish king. Well, as you can imagine, this drove the Syrians nuts. I mean, how, how does this keep happening? How are their plans always ruined? Look at verse 11. It says, and the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? Stop there. I mean, you can imagine his frustration. How does this keep happening? How does the king of Israel always know where we're going to be? Does he have a spy? Is there a mole in our operation? Which one of you is betraying us? Which one of you is for Israel? Now, the king's servants... They have heard about Elisha. They have heard about, about who he is, how he is truly a prophet of, of the true God. So they know the problem. They identify the problem. Look at verse 12. And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. Right? Meaning, none of us is a traitor to you, O king, but Israel has a secret weapon. Israel has a secret weapon. His name is Elisha. Read on in verse 12. He says, But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. That got weird real quick, right? Like, this guy's like, King, you know the problem. It's Elisha. It's like he's always there. He's always listening. Oh, king, when you're alone in your bedroom, bedroom at night and you're whispering things in your sleep. It's like Elisha's there. He hears it all. He knows your secrets, O king. Well, we can't have that. Look at the next verse, verse 13 and 14. And he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. Man, horses and chariots and a great army for one man, for one for one guy. I mean, this reveals just how much the king of Syria feared Elisha. And you probably, you probably already picked up on this, but this also shows time and time again how sin makes you so stupid. Sin, sin makes you so stupid. Listen, if what you believe is true about Elisha, that he hears the words that you speak in your bedroom, would he not know about this plan that you are sending to go launch all these troops and chariots and, 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 and to capture him? Sin makes you do such foolish things. It is always foolish to oppose the one true God. It is always foolish to be opposed to the people of God. And yet the king of Syria sends this massive army to capture and surprise one man, Elisha. This is so great. Look at, look at the next verse, verse 15. When the servant 
of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, behold, an army with horses and chariots were all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? Our goose is cooked. This is bad. Elisha, there is no escape for us this time. The enemy's there, and he's there, and he's there, and he's there, and the chariots and, and, and the soldiers. Elisha, listen, the enemy has done his worst, and there's no escape for us. I guess this is how it ends for the people who trust God. I guess this is how it ends for those who are, who are faithful to God. I guess they fail. I guess they, they end in misery. Alas, Elisha, what are we going to do? Read on. Look at verses 16 and 17. He said, that is, Elisha said to his servant, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And brothers and sisters, that's the point. That's what we need. We need to have our eyes opened, listen, to the reality of who God is, of what he is doing, of where he is working. And, and listen, we need, to be, we need to have our eyes open to an awareness of how present and gracious and sovereign he actually is towards his people. This is why we need chapters like Revelation 14. And listen, don't worry, we're not going to Revelation 14 just yet. We're going to finish the story here in 2 Kings. It would be cruel and unusual punishment not to, but the point is too often we are just like Elisha's servant. We see the enemy, but we do not see God. We are, we are absent. It's like we have amnesia, like we are unaware of the presence of God. We are good at becoming overwhelmed with fear, and yet we are so oblivious to God and His presence and His work in our lives. And so we say things like what Elisha's servant says here, Alas, woe is me, what shall we do? And we fail to see the provision we fail to see the promises. We fail to see the absolute victory that is coming for all who are in Christ. I think that a most wonderful thing happens here in the life of this servant because he now sees something of the greatness of God. He now sees the reality of the victory that heaven guarantees. And listen, he still sees the Syrians. He still sees the troops and he still sees the chariots. He still sees the enemy, but the hills have come alive. Not with the sound of music, but with the presence of God with the presence of the reality of God in His grace, in His power, and in His strength. So, if you're still in 2 Kings, look at verse 18. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Have you noticed, Elisha sure does pray a lot. It's like every time we encounter him, 
in the text, he's praying. Seems like he actually knows who's in charge of kings and armies and rulers. There's probably a lesson somewhere in there for us. But it's interesting how in the one instance with his servant, Elisha prays for sight. In the other instance with the enemy soldiers, he prays for blindness. He prays that they would be be blind. And it's important to understand that this word translated as blindness, it refers to more than just physical blindness. It refers to a blindness and confusion of the mind. So that these Syrian soldiers, they become helpless. They become unable to, to process and to rightly understand. Their, 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 their thinking becomes so completely cloudy here. It's, it's like they are blind and helpless. So as these soldiers come down to attack, to capture Elisha, as God strikes them with blindness and confusion, we see that they are helpless and they are vulnerable. Look at verse 19. And Elisha said to them, these are not the droids you're looking for. You don't need to see our identification. That's, that's not what he says. But what, but what Elisha does do here, he steps up to now lead these enemy soldiers to where God wants them to be. Look at what Elisha says. Elisha says to them, quote, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. Who's in Samaria? Jehoram, king of Israel, with his armies and with his strength. Look at verses 20 to 22. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, again, because he's always praying, he's always praying. What does he do here? He's praying. He says, oh Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? Because all of a sudden the king of Israel is a huge fan of Elisha. Referring to him in in very generous terms. Oh, father, what shall I do? Oh, father, shall I kill them now? Shall I kill them now? Please give me the order so I can slaughter all these enemy troops. But Elisha warns the king, don't be so hasty. Don't be so quick to shed these these men and, and their blood. Don't be so quick to execute them. Look at what he says. He answers in verse 22, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Feed these men. Care for these men. Give them something to drink and then send them home to their master where they will have a story to tell. They will have news to report. They will have a story to tell of the greatness and the power and the grace of God. Send them home to testify to what the true God has done. And then lastly, we come to verse 23. My favorite verse in this entire text. Verse 23, we read, So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And now here's my favorite sentence. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. I bet they didn't. The Syrians did not come again. 
after this, they're like, we're good. We're good. We're, we're, we're going to mind our own business. We're going we're to stay over here. We're going to think about our life choices. We're not, we're not going to invade Israel again. Why? What has happened to these Syrian soldiers? And what has happened to the servant of Elisha? who had his eyes open. Listen, God has allowed them to see and to know reality. God has allowed them to see and to know who actually rules heaven and earth. God has allowed them to see and to know that the God of Israel, the true God, he stands in victory. And again, we need to have eyes to see this as well. We need to have our spiritual eyes open to see the power and the presence of God in the situations that we find ourselves in. And so with that in mind, please turn now to Revelation chapter 14. And as you turn there, remember what we said several weeks ago. Okay, so do two things at once. Turn in your Bibles and listen to me. This is so important. Remember where we are. Uh, Remember what we said a few weeks ago that in chapters 12, 13, and 14 we have a little bit of an intermission. We have a break in the action. There's a time out where God reminds John and he shows John the big picture of human history. He shows John the big picture of of redemptive history on how it began, on how it's going and how it's ultimately going to end in chapter 12 Remember, we saw those great signs. We saw a woman, a dragon, a child that is born. We saw war. We see the dragon eager to eat the child and destroy Christ. But since he cannot do that, he is eager to attack and to destroy the people of God. And yet time and time again in chapters 12, 13, and 14, we see that Satan fails. He fails. He is unable to dethrone Christ. He is unable to steal the glory that belongs to God. He is unable to destroy the people of God. In chapter 13, we saw how how Satan continues his desperate war. He puts a, a world leader, a prominent figure, a counterfeit Christ that is called the first beast into a position of authority. We see the first beast rise in chapter 13. We see the second beast rise in chapter 13. This second beast who is a false prophet, who does everything he can to promote idolatry and to coerce people into false worship. He even threatens people with poverty and death if they will not worship the beast. And so from chapter 13, we see the fact that yes, the enemy will do his worst. The enemy will do everything he can, listen, to try to undermine faith, to steal glory, to entice people to leave Christ, to entice people to sin, to pursue idolatry. The enemy will do everything he can to destroy and to demoralize the people of God. And just like it looked like Elisha was surrounded, it looked like there was no hope, For Elisha, we, at times, may be tempted to say and think similar things. We may be tempted to think, to say, we're outnumbered. The enemy is too great. We can't match his power. We can't match his influence. Stick a fork in us. We are done. Hold on. Hold on. Chapter 
14 has a thing or two to say about that. Revelation chapter 14 helps to open our eyes so that we see the Lamb, Christ, standing in victory. Revelation 14 opens our eyes to see the people of God safe and secure, to see the children of God as strong in their love for Christ. Listen, as we will see this morning, not only are they strong and they are secure, they're even singing. They're singing and they're celebrating and they're rejoicing because they belong to the Lamb, because they are victorious in Christ. They have been made alive in Him. So please note this on your outline, and I promise we are actually getting to Revelation 14 soon, but this is an important point that I want you to see and to think about before we launch out into the chapter. Note this on your outline. Revelation 14, again, it shows us the end. It fast Forwards. It shows us pictures of the coming conclusion, which is the triumph and the victory of Christ and his people. And it does this, it reveals this in three parts or in three scenes. In verses 1 to 5, we see the victorious lamb standing with his people. Then in verses 6 to 13, we see three angelic announcements of God's judgment and blessing. And then in verses 14 to 20, we see the coming harvest. We see the coming reckoning of Christ's judgment. And so, with the rest of our time, we're just going to cover these first five verses this morning, which again show us the victorious Lamb standing with his people. So if you're in Revelation 14, let's look at the first five verses. John writes, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were, they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. This is such good news. You're going to be so glad that you came to church today. This is such good news. Now, here's, here's how we're going to look at these verses and, and work through them. First of all, we're going to consider the general setting, okay? Just the general setting of these verses. Where are we in these, in these verses? Who is here? What are they doing? And how does this fit in with what we just studied the last couple of weeks in chapter 13? So the general setting. And then... We need to look at the different voices that we hear in this passage. Who is speaking? What are they saying? 
Who is singing and why? And what is this song that no one can learn except 144,000? Can you teach it to me? I can't, but Kerwin Kaufman can. It's going to be our closing song for this morning. I'm just kidding. It won't be our closing song for this morning, but we'll talk about that. Why is it no one can learn this song? And then lastly, we're going to want to consider the defining characteristics of those who are redeemed. The defining characteristics of those who here are standing with the Lamb, are victorious with the Lamb. So let's get to it. Number one, note this on your outline, the general setting. These verses purposefully show us glorious, heavenly, wondrous things. And, and let me just pause there for a moment. In fact, many of the things that we see here is beyond our comprehension. In fact, even as you go through the text, it's almost as if the text purposefully blurs the line between heaven and earth. You're like, wait, are we in heaven? Are we on earth here? Well, yeah, this is glorious. This is incredible. God is helping to open our eyes to see the victory that is coming, to see things that are glorious and and wondrous. So please note this on your outline. So many of the beautiful details that we see here in these verses, they're an answer to. They are an answer to. They are a response to, a holy correction to the ugliness of what we just saw in chapter 13. There are, there are lots, there are lots of noticeable and dramatic contrasts between chapters 13 and 14. So let me just highlight a few. In chapter 13, the first beast rises from the sea, and then the second beast rises from the earth, and in the midst of it all, we're like, well, where is, where is Christ? Where, where is He? In, in, in the midst of all this ugliness, in the midst of Satan doing his worst, in the midst of the first beast and, and, and the second beast, does Jesus know? Is Jesus aware of what, of what's happening? And then you come to chapter 14 and you're like, there he is. He's standing on Mount Zion. He's in victory. He's triumphant. He's with his people. He hasn't abandoned his people. He's standing with his people. The lamb is not hiding from the first beast. He's not hiding from the second beast. These beasts will in fact soon face the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of the true King. In fact, what we see here in Revelation 14, it is, it is looking forward to and anticipating and even seeing as now being fulfilled the words of Psalm 2 verse 6, where God says, as for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. So buckle up, things are about to get real Jesus is ruling and reigning. He is standing in victory with his people. Next, also remember that in chapter 13, we see the whole unbelieving world just going crazy for the beast, loving the beast, worshiping the beast. In chapter 14, what do we see? We see the people of God with the Lamb. We see 144,000 who refuse to worship the beast, who refuse to take his mark, who refuse to worship his image. And while I do believe 
that this group, this 144,000, that it does refer to a specific group of real redeemed Jewish individuals that we read about in chapter 7. Here in chapter 14 in verse 4, they are specifically called, they are specifically identified as first fruits. First fruits, meaning, yes, they belong to God and also meaning that they represent a much larger group. That's what, that's what first fruits are. They are the first fruits. They're just that. They are the first fruits of a larger harvest. And so as we look at Revelation chapter 7, and as we look now at Revelation chapter 14, I think God wants us to see, I think God wants us to say, well, would you look at that? Not one is missing. Not one is missing. As we come to chapter 14, we do not see 143,999 standing with the Lamb. No, we see the complete group. 144,000, all of them, not one of God's chosen, sealed saints has been lost. The hymn writer in verse 3 of There is a Fountain got it exactly right. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. The point is, we see that the worst that Satan can do with the first beast and the second beast and all of his hatred and persecution, he cannot undo the salvation that Jesus died to accomplish. He cannot undo by all of his vile hatred and work, he cannot steal even one child from God's hand. Next, remember that in chapter 13, we see the unbelieving world so eager to identify themselves with the beast. We see the unbelieving world eager to take the name of the beast and the number of the beast on their right hand or on their forehead. Here, in chapter 14, we see that the name of the Lamb and the name of the Father is written on the forehead of God's people. Now, you may hear that and say, well, which is it? Is it the name of the Lamb or is it the name of the Father? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes, because to know God the Son is to know God the Father. To be beloved in Christ is to be in the Father's love as well. To honor Christ is to honor His Father who sent Him into the world to be the Savior that we need. Remember what Jesus said in John 10, 27. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Brothers and sisters, that's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. It is to know God. It is to know the Father. It is to know the Son as Savior. It is to know the Spirit. 
Spirit who lives in His people. It is to be identified with God. It is, it is to have His life influencing all that we do and all that we say and all that we are. We belong to Him. That's the point. You don't belong to the beast. If you are in Christ, if you are one of His children, you are not lost and you belong to God. You belong to the Lamb. You belong to the Father with His name and His seal being upon you. Lastly, in chapter 13, we saw a flood of deception. Just a flood of vile, corrupt deception. Satan's lies abound. They seem to run wild. The first beast is a liar. The second beast is a master deceiver. And sadly, many people are coerced and manipulated into idolatry. It is, it is a very ugly scene. But then, in chapter 14, the truth of God shines so brightly, the truth of Christ's presence, the truth of Christ's victory, the truth that God's people will live and will speak as ambassadors for Christ. Did you jump down again and, and look at verse 5 here, here in the text? We read of this redeemed people of God and in their mouth no lie was found for they are blameless. So, in many ways, chapter 14, it shines. It shines light, truth, grace, hope into the darkness that we read about in chapter 13. Next, on your outline, we need to consider the different voices that we hear. Who do we hear? What do we hear? What's the deal with the song that no one can learn? Please note it on your outline. Number two, here John describes, he describes a mighty and yet a beautiful and gentle voice from heaven. John hears the singing of a new song that is, for some reason, it is unlearnable. John sees this new song as being added, added to the worship of heaven, added to the worship that is already being offered by the four living creatures and by the 24 elders. The point is, worship is growing. God's Praise is intensifying. This is a good and a glorious thing. And so as we look at this text in verse 2, we do see, though, a rather peculiar description of this voice, this voice that John hears. Look again at verse 2. John writes, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists, playing on their harps. This is interesting. This voice, it sounds powerful, like rushing water. It sounds mighty, like Niagara Falls. If you've ever stood there and just watched the water pour over and the sound is deafening, that's, that's kind of what this voice sounds like. John says it also sounds frightening. It also sounds overwhelming. He says it sounds like Thunder that is just booming out across the sky right over your head. And unexpectedly, it also sounds beautiful. It also sounds rich. It sounds lovely. It sounds sweet. It sounds harmonious. He says it sounds like 
multiple harpists like Christy and Montana Paul when they're up here playing. And Tim, it's time. It's time for you to learn harp as well, brother. You're going to join them next time. So there'll be so that's what it's like. He says it's kind of like that. It's mighty and it's powerful and it's overwhelming and it's thunderous and it's beautiful and it's harmonious and it's, it's gentle. There's richness to it. Whose voice is this? Who talks like that in such a powerful and yet beautiful way? God does. God does. God is here. Of course he's here. And listen, simply the presence of his voice reveals something about his character, reveals something about his nature. And listen, God is, he is both revealed in his power and in his majesty, and he is revealed in his kindness and in his beauty. Psalm 29 reminds us that the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. We hear that and we say, Amen. Yes, that is absolutely true. And it's also true that God's Word gives life. That God's Word is gracious. It is kind. It is beautiful to behold and to hear. And the psalmist talked about that in Psalm 119, verse 41, where he praises God, saying, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation, according to your promise. He says, Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me. Why? For I trust in your word. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and I shall not be put to shame. Why? For I find my delight in your commandments which I love. I love it. I love it. Your word is, is powerful. It is majestic. And to the people of God, it is sweet. It is beautiful. It is a life-giving thing. It is a joy to hear and to have. And then, and then, John also hears singing. He hears singing. He hears a new song being sung. In verse 3, we read this. It says, And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Okay, let me just give you a few thoughts on this song that no one can learn. Please note it on your outline. Whenever the Bible talks about a new song being sung, it is almost always sung in response, listen, to some wonderful new expression of God's mercy. Some new expression of God's grace and, and deliverance. Listen, it's not that God has changed, because He does not change, but it's that we recognize something new and wonderful about Him that we didn't see before. And it warrants a new song. It warrants a new expression of praise and joy and thanksgiving. It warrants us saying so and recognizing what we love and see and appreciate about God. A new song says, look at what God has done. Look at how kind and good He has been to us. Look at how He has again 
provided for us. He has shown himself so faithful and so good. He is our gracious Redeemer. He has not abandoned his people. Even when the enemy does his worst, God is faithful. And that warrants a song. That warrants singing and celebration. But not only that, please note this on your outline, and maybe this will help with the whole unlearnable part of this. Okay, the Greek word translated as learn, it refers to learning something by experience. Okay, learning something by experience. These 144,000, the redeemed from the earth, they have experienced something wonderful. They've experienced something incredible. They've experienced the fullness of God's redeeming, reconciling, delivering, and conquering grace. Listen, this song is not unlearnable because its melody is too hard. You know, you hear it like, I can't sing that. I, those are weird intervals, and I, I don't like that, and uses too many tritones and minor six, and I, I don't like it. It's not unlearnable uh, because, because it's too syncopated. And you're like, I can't even clap. When we were trying to do the song, Your Grace is Enough, I, I just can't even clap on that one part because I have no rhythm. So it's not unlearnable because the melody is too hard. It's not unlearnable because it's too syncopated and, and, and the rhythm is too difficult. No, it can only be learned by those who have experienced what is being described here in the text. It can only be learned by experience by those who have persevered to the end. By those who have persevered to the end. These 144,000, by God's grace, they have persevered. By God's grace, they have continued to love and to follow the Lamb amidst the worst of situations, amidst the worst of persecution. So yes, they have something to sing about. Now, even as they, as quickly as I say that, I hasten to say this. If you are in Christ, you have something to sing about. You have too experienced the grace of God, the mercy of God. You have something to sing about. One And one day, by God's grace, as we continue to learn, as we continue to grow in our faith, as we continue to grow in our love, we will be able to sing in a more full and perfect way about the glory of God's redeeming love. We too will be able to sing about the glory of God's reconciling, delivering, conquering grace because the fact is (laughs) each one of us has a race to run. You do. You have a race to run. Each one of us is called to persevere in the face of opposition, in the face of temptation. Each one of us is called to follow Jesus. Every one of us is called to have Christ as the supreme love of our life, that we would know Him and honor Him and esteem Him as our first love. And listen, it's no accident then that that's what the rest of this passage is about, is about how these 144,000 loved Christ and followed Him, and worshipped Him, and showed the fact that He was preeminent in their lives. So what does that look like? What does it look like to love Christ, to honor Him, to esteem Him, to, to worship Him truly and rightly? 
these verses are so helpful to us. So, if you're taking notes, note this. Number three on your outline. We see the characteristics now. We see the evidence of love for Christ in what follows. We see these 144,000. They pursue purity. They follow Jesus wherever he leads. They recognize and rejoice in their redemption. And they speak what is true. They speak what is helpful to those around them. So the first thing that John identifies here is this group's pursuit of purity. We read at the beginning of verse 4 this. It says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, just to get to the point quickly, I don't think that this verse is prescribing celibacy. I don't think this verse is saying that those who get married, they're really inferior Christians. That they serve Christ in an inferior way. I don't think this verse is teaching at all that sexual intimacy within marriage is somehow a bad or defiling thing. No, quite to the contrary. The Bible says explicitly that marriage is honorable. The Bible says that marriage, that sex within marriage is a good thing. It is a beautiful thing. It is, it is a wonderful thing. And yet, throughout Scripture, idolatry, worshiping anything other than God, it is described as spiritual adultery. It is described as defiling yourself. I think the point being made here is that a defining mark of the people of God is that we are faithful to Jesus. We are faithful to Him. We, we seek to throw off idolatry. We, 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 we refuse to worship the beast. We refuse to worship His image. We refuse to engage in anything that would steal our affection and our love for Christ. So, listen, the question is, and the question that confronts us so often and so frequently really is, what is the first love in your life? What is it? What holds preeminence in your heart today? What do you love above all things? Is it Christ? Or has your gaze shifted to someone else, to something else, to anything else? Next, we see that these 144,000, they follow Jesus wherever he leads. Look at the middle of verse 4. We read, It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Their allegiance is to Christ. Therefore, they want to be with him, listen, with him, wherever he leads. They want to honor him and follow him. It doesn't matter the danger so long as they are with Christ. He is the good shepherd. He will lead us into paths of righteousness for his glory and for our good. I mean, God's people, we are the ones who should continually say, and I know this is a a popular line in some song that I constantly hear on the radio, and I'm not going to sing it for you, but the line in the song continually goes, lead on, good shepherd, lead on. And you know what? That's not wrong. That's good. That's actually really good advice. Lead on, good shepherd. And the whole implication is, and we will follow, right? We will, we will follow. And again, that sounds good. That sounds easy to say. But in saying that, are we really ready and eager to follow Christ wherever he leads? 
Are we willing to follow Christ even when He leads us into uncomfortable situations? Do we really say, lead on, good shepherd, lead on, when He leads us across the street to meet our neighbor, to love our neighbor, to represent Christ to our neighbor? Do we really say, lead on, good shepherd, lead on, when He leads us to go on a missions trip to a place that we don't want to go to? To meet people that we don't want to meet. To serve them in ways that we're not interested. Do we really say, lead on, good shepherd, lead on, when he leads us to move and to help start a church in a city or a town that needs a gospel influence? Are we really then so eager to say, lead on, good shepherd? How about when he leads you to apologize to your spouse? And your kids, because you have been a monster this week. In those moments, lead on, good shepherd, lead on. See, the word that I don't like in this verse is the word wherever. And you don't like it either. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Really? Wherever? Lead me to Disney World. I'm on board. Lead me across the street to my neighbor's house. Hard pass. Hard pass. So what's the point? Here's the point. Brothers and sisters, we can be ready and prepared and willing to follow Christ. Listen, only when, only when we realize that it is Jesus who goes with us. It is Jesus who walks with us. It is Jesus who sends us. He walks with us. He leads us according to His wisdom and according to His love. And yes, He does so for His glory, but He also does so for our good. Here's the point I'm trying to say. Christ is not some distant CEO who is totally uh, detached from real life. Christ is not some distant general who is barking out orders while he is safe in some distant bunker. No, Christ is for his people. He is with his people. And by his spirit, he is in his people. He is in his people. So we can say, lead on, good shepherd, because you walk with us. You go with us and you know what is best for us. So God, give us eyes to see that and give us hearts to love that, hearts to love that truth. And so this now leads us to the third characteristic of these believers, and that is they know their redemption and they celebrate their redemption. They celebrate the fact that they belong to the Father and they belong to the Lamb. We read at the end of verse 4, These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. So they belong to the Father and they belong to the Lamb. They have been redeemed. That is to say they have been purchased out of something to something. They have been purchased by the blood of Christ out of slavery to sin and death and they have now been delivered into Christ's kingdom to know Him and to love Him and to follow Him. And here's the thing, this changes everything. This changes everything. Listen, from this one truth, from this one fact, 
Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 6.19. He, he wrote this. For you are not your own. What do you mean? Don't tell me I'm not my own. I belong to me. No one can tell me what to do. What do you mean, Paul? You are not your own. Well, he says, for you were bought with a price. You were bought by the blood of Christ. You belong to Christ. So what should I do, Paul? What does that mean now for me? So glorify God in your body. Listen, you don't belong to you and praise God that you don't because you are a terrible God. You are a horrible God. Okay, you need the true God. You need the living God. You need to know Him. You need to live for Him. You need to be redeemed by Him. You belong to Jesus. If you know Him as Lord and Savior, He died to make you His own. He died to change you, to transform you, to bring you into His story of grace. His redemptive story. His love. So these believers, these 144,000, which are helpful examples to us. They pursue purity. They follow the Lamb wherever He leads. They rejoice in their redemption. And lastly, their speech. Their speech has been transformed. They now speak out of a changed heart. We read in verse 5, And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now listen, it's not, it's not that these 144,000 are sinless because then they would not need Jesus. They have been cleansed of their sins. They have been forgiven of their sins. They have received the righteousness of Christ that comes to us by faith, and they are now living a life that evidences the grace and the power of God at work in them. So, yeah, they speak what is true. They say what is helpful. They do not turn a blind eye to idolatry. They do not pretend like the beast is Lord when he is not. They refuse to encourage anyone to look at idolatry and instead they say what is true about Jesus. They say what is true about his life, his death, his resurrection, and his soon return. And again, their speaking comes from a changed heart. It comes from a heart that has been transformed by Christ. And so, we should pray. We should pray that what is said to be true of these believers here in Revelation 14 will be true of us. That we love Christ beyond all things. That we are faithful to Him. That we, that we gladly follow Him wherever He leads. That we rejoice in our redemption. That we rejoice to know that we belong to Him. And that we speak what is true. We say what is right from a changed heart. From a heart that is filled with God's truth and love. And so, brothers and sisters, it does not matter how many Syrian troops, how many Syrian chariots and soldiers surround the city. It does not matter how many beasts arise from the sea or arise from the earth. It does not matter how Satan rages and reveals his hatred for God and for the people of God. Revelation 14 shows us this. The Lamb is not in retreat. The lamb is not running in fear. He is not hiding. He is not cowardly, hunkered down somewhere. He is standing with his people. Let us pray that God would give us eyes to see and hearts to love this truth. Let's pray. 
Gracious Father, we, we do delight this morning to recognize your sovereignty, to recognize your love, and to sing and to celebrate about the redemption that we have received in Christ. That we don't belong to ourselves and we belong to you because of what Christ has done. God, we, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would see what is real, that we would know the glory and the victory of Christ. God, you are not in retreat. May we never run in retreat. May we live to advance your gospel. May we live to spread your love. May we live to speak what is true so that others may know how good and kind and wonderful and gracious you are. Lord, we love you and we pray all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.